Welcome to the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series with Dr. Dave Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee is the author of Cybersecurity Readiness, a holistic and high-performance approach by Sage Publishing. He has been studying cybersecurity for over a decade, authored and edited scholarly papers, delivered talks, conducted webinars, consulted with companies, and served on a cybersecurity SWAT team with Chief Information Security Officers. Dr. Chatterjee is an Associate Professor of Management Information Systems at the Terry College of Business, the University of Georgia, and Visiting Professor at Duke University's Pratt School of Engineering. Hello everyone, I'm delighted to welcome you to another episode of the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series. Today our guest is Mr. Stoddard Manikin, Chief Information Security Officer Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. With over 18 years of progressive experience in information technology, security, and privacy, Stoddard specializes in advising complex organizations on security topics, including regulatory compliance, integrating information security with enterprise risk management, and identity and access management. So we are truly privileged to have a subject matter expert with us. Started, welcome. Thanks for making time for this podcast. Thank you, Dave. It's great to be here. So given your the amount of time you've, you've spent as a cybersecurity professional, I'm sure you've seen a lot over the last 25 years in the cybersecurity space. How would you capture the evolution of this phenomenon? And what have stayed with you by way of lessons learned? I think that cybersecurity has evolved dramatically um, since I've been involved in the 1990s. And, and that's true of so many aspects of you know, modern life. But in particular, we didn't used to call it cybersecurity either. We used to call it you know, information security or even data security. So uh, the name itself has changed over time to, to reflect um, what, what the world thinks of it. Um, but I think that uh, most importantly, it's it's captured the imagination much more so. It's kind of followed that hype train, if you will, that popular culture typically does, where something is marginally understood by the masses, and then some tiny aspect of it is used to appeal to the masses. Like if you look back many years ago when there were hacker movies coming out of Hollywood, and everything was just super oversimplified and glorified and uh, it made everybody fear that these hackers were everywhere and they could get in and, and steal all your information by guessing a couple of passwords, right? Um, so now I think we've we've gotten to a point where most people realize that there's not just somebody hiding in a basement somewhere with a dial-up modem cracking into all these different organizations. I mean, now we're we're talking about organized crime, state-sponsored actors, you know, script kitties renting uh, ransomware as a service and using it to make money. And, and it's truly a college cottage industry where at this point, uh, a lot of these uh, ransomware as a services will not only provide the software, but also they include um, English speaking help desks to help their payers figure out how to buy Bitcoin and pay the ransom. So it's tremendous evolution uh, in terms of the threat landscape. And it's also remarkable evolution from the perspective of practitioners uh, like ourselves. 
So the, the specialization is significant, whereas 20 years ago, you might have one security person or maybe just a network person who dabbled in security, and they had to learn how to do it all. And the expectation from management was that one person could do it all. And, and now you have specialization of positions in cybersecurity, much like you do in the medical field, uh, where you, you wouldn't want to hire, uh, say, a, a surgeon um, to, to look at common colds. Right? What is the point of that? Nor would you want a general practitioner doing surgery. Well, it's a lot like that in cybersecurity. Uh, there are certain positions where you are trained to do certain things, and you are not necessarily an expert to do others. And so that specialization has become very dramatic in the industry. And unfortunately, we still have a, a ways to go in convincing um, non-practitioners of the specialization importance because we still see job postings out there looking for a security professional, and they're expected to do the, the work of eight different people. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of the next step of the evolution. It's that recognition of the variety of specializations in cybersecurity, and that no one person can do them all. You've, you've captured the, the landscape very, very well. Um, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, uh, talking about specialization, um, getting the right people for the right kinds of roles in cybersecurity is very critical, and there are challenges there. But at the same time, you also need the non-cybersecurity professionals, the members of the organization, to also do their part. Uh, don't you agree? Absolutely. Um, it, cybersecurity is everyone's responsibility within an organization. Um, uh, it's to the point where, in my opinion, every certainly every IT job description should have some type of security requirements written into it. Um, because I think we're past the days where you have a few people in a room providing all the security to the organization, and it's just up to them to take care of it. It's now uh, a central team coordinating cybersecurity for an organization, but directing a lot of different players. And when it comes down to it, people are the easiest way to breach an organization's security defenses. So it's incumbent on every organization to train all of their users that have access to IT resources and equip them with the knowledge and awareness they need so that they can be prepared should someone target them with some kind of attack or attempted attack? Yeah, uh, the human element in cybersecurity is so significant. I, I like the way you framed it. It's, I couldn't emphasize more what you just said. Everyone has a role to play and they must be trained accordingly. Um, you know, I've been doing research in this area. I've authored a book, I consult as well. One of the things that I see across the spectrum is a varied approach to cybersecurity awareness and training. In some organizations, it's about checking the box and doing the required training once or twice in the year. It's kind of broad-based, a hit or miss approach. And then there are other organizations where they have a more role-focused training. In your experience, what have you seen or what are you seeing? And what are your recommendations when it comes to cybersecurity awareness and training? 
It's a great question because it's so relevant. And I think that what you were describing where an organization might provide perhaps an onboarding training when they first start to say, hey, don't give your password to anyone and here's how you enroll in password reset and, and watch out for phishing attempts. That's uh, like maturity level 1.0 and table stakes, right? You have to do that uh, the, on their first day, of course. But from there, it requires consistent reinforcement of the topic and reminders for people because human beings um, typically can't retain information forever after hearing it once. And so um, what I find to be most effective is to start off with that kind of onboarding training, that background stuff, the context. And then what that does is it plants triggers so that when the users hear future trainings, it reminds them, oh yeah, that is important. And I remember why, and I heard this before somewhere, but I can't quite make it out. And so over time, you build up that retention and awareness. And I think that minimum once a year type of training is what a lot of organizations do. Uh, and frankly, it's, it's not enough depending on someone's job function and responsibility. So it, maybe you do that for the majority of your workforce that rarely um, has to worry about security issues. But you know, if you've got people processing an invoice uh, and, and payroll, then they are specifically going to be targeted with business email compromise attempts constantly. And if you only train them once a year, you can't expect them to successfully repel those attacks that have been honed and improved upon through thousands of attempts around the world on a daily basis. So I find that providing them specialized training, giving them a forum to ask questions, testing them on it, perhaps even monthly with a simulation exercise, is how you get the best behavioral response. The other part of that training is it can't just be one way where you're giving them the info. The next step is to test them on it. And then the step after that is to measure them on it. So for example, if you do an, a quarterly or a monthly phishing test, capture the results of that test. Did people click on the link or enter their credentials? Did they open the attachment? Did they do nothing? Did they report the message proactively, which is the best behavior? And then report on those percentages by department, by division, by type of user to the leadership chain. And the data will help you figure out where your education is working and where it needs to be improved. Fantastic. Means uh, being able to measure the effectiveness of training is so critical. And I don't hear folks in your position emphasize this enough. In fact, the first time I'm hearing a CISO so emphatically specifying the importance of measurement um, because there's no point giving people training if you're not being able to see the progress or if you don't see the progress, what else can be done? In other words, mm -hmm. you know, taking a very substantive approach as opposed to check the box approach where you really want to see this whatever training is being is being given is having an impact. Uh, talking about measurement started, if we can go a little broader, as the CISO of your organization, and you don't have to be specific to your organization, you can be very generic. Um, what are some metrics or KPIs that are being tracked or should be tracked? This is a very challenging one to answer because the, the audience that you're preparing the metrics for 
has very different levels of understanding of them. So, you know, if you think back to the old days when you had a, a CISO who was more of like a network security person or an IT security person, they would trot out the metrics of, you know, the number of intrusion attempts and the number of things that got blocked at the firewall and all very kind of technical uh, objective data that wasn't necessarily meaningful to the audience. Now, I think there's a place for some of that data to remain in your, your kind of dashboard reporting type of things, particularly for your executive team and your board. But I think you've also got to have some other really common sense measures in there, um, things that are more related to the organization itself. Like, for example, if you have a strategic goal to reach a certain level of maturity on a, on a given maturity framework, then you might want to report on what your most recent third-party assessment gave you as a maturity ranking. And whether that's up or down and the areas where you improve, the areas where you're still lagging uh, and so forth. You might also want to include something along the lines of the number of IT audit findings uh, that happen from an external audit, because I think that's important to, to watch for trends. And then you can dive into the details either in the comments section or in follow-up Q&A where you say, here's where the audit findings are. Is it the same place as the last three years and we're not fixing it? Or is it a brand new place? Or is it a brand new field? like related to cloud security that's just so new that you don't have a handle on it yet. And I think that that way, your metrics can drive the conversation of where you need to focus and prioritize investment. Absolutely. In fact, you touched upon three things about performance measures. First is taking a holistic approach. In fact, when I look at my research, my book, I come at it from the standpoint of business value impact measures, productivity measures, uh, extent of preparedness measures, audit and compliance measures, and there can be more. Mm -hmm. the, second, the second thing that you talked about is equally important. What's the point of measuring if we are not gonna review the results and act on them? So what mechanisms are in place to effectively and promptly review the findings and take action? And the third is, who is interested in these measures? And how important is it? Are these measures to them? As you know, in organizations, there can be a multitude of metrics. And often what gets measured is what is convenient to measure, not what needs to be measured. And I'm sure cybersecurity is not an exception to that situation. But, uh, but yeah, the points are very, very well made. Um, moving along, from the standpoint of CISO empowerment, mm -hmm. essentially the question is, what does it take to make a CISO, and when I say CISO, I mean the CISO function as a whole, effective? Well, that's an interesting one, too, because the, the role has changed over time, including its position in the organization and the reporting structure. And, and there is no one answer to this either. A lot of it depends on the organization and who's in the roles at that organization. I think that historically, a lot of uh, CISOs came from you know, one of two places. They came either from military and law enforcement, uh, or they came from a, a network security type of background. And, and both of those types of backgrounds prepare you well, uh, but unless you're able to expand your, your perspective 
and embrace a lot of other areas of the organization, you can't succeed as a modern CISO. Um, I, I certainly need the fundamental technical background to understand what people are telling me and what the implications are. I need to understand how law enforcement works and when to engage with them and how to do so effectively. But I also have to understand regulatory compliance. I have to understand audit. I have to understand finance because when I'm trying to get a security product in-house and implement it, I have to know how to budget for it, whether it makes more sense for us to capitalize it or subscribe to it and pay it out of OPEX. I have to know you know, whether um, the training should be included or not, depending on how we want to pay for things and, and what the useful lifespan is going to be. So I've got to understand those financial implications. I also need to understand insurance because cybersecurity insurance is a critical aspect of this. And then there's other areas as well that you've got to have a broad understanding of. But first and foremost, the most fundamental thing you've got to know at the CISO is the business of the organization that you're in. Because if you don't understand how the business operates, what it does, how it uh, earns money, how it spends money, where it really makes its profit that funds other areas that have losses, then it's very hard for you to understand how to prioritize what security controls need to be put in place and, and also how restrictive you can be without cutting off the lifeblood of the organization. Security versus convenience, security versus mission of the organization. You have to find that balance. Very well said, very well said. So I'd like to follow up on a couple of things you mentioned. Um, you talked about law enforcement and regulatory compliance. And that brings to mind the role that the legal function plays. And if you think about it, when organizations are in trouble, uh, many a times that leads to a lawsuit, they have to defend you know, all that they have done to protect the organization and so on and so forth. So doesn't it make sense to involve legal every step of the way? And is that too much to expect? Because when I pose this question to people in other organizations in your role, I get very different responses. And sometimes the responses are not very clear. So I want to know from a practical standpoint, how feasible is, is it to involve legal or to work with legal closely? I think it's not only feasible, but it's a requirement for survival of a CISO. Um, I've always had excellent relationships with uh, the legal officers of different organizations that I've worked with. And I think that it all comes down to the relationship that, that cybersecurity has with legal as far as how straightforward it is to engage. Now, I would not propose bringing everything to legal that happens because so many things that, that start out as an investigation turn into nothing. It turns into, sure, this looks really bad. It looks like someone just hacked us from Puerto Rico and we don't have any operations there. But then you dig into the, the details and the logs and you find, okay, we actually had someone on vacation and they got a call and they were asked to log in and do this. So, you know, why would I alarm legal about that until I've done some due diligence around it? Um, bring things to them that are real or if they're significant enough that you don't know yet, but they need to be aware and involved early, then be clear with them that you don't know yet if this is real or not. 
but you're engaging them early so that if it becomes real, they'll have background and context and they're ramped up already. Very fair, very reasonable. But, but is it also true that when you're formulating your cybersecurity strategy or let's say you're doing a, um, an annual review that you get legal involved to provide y'all with a checklist or a guideline or the do's and don'ts just to make sure that you are always staying on the right side of the law. Is that, is that a common practice, common procedure or do you all accomplish it in some other way? You know, I think it depends um, because really what I'm interpreting as you say legal in that context is it's really about regulatory compliance or even contractual obligations, right? Because those are two different things that you have to think about as a CISO. And from a regulatory compliance perspective, you've got to think about the international implications, the national. Uh, here in the U.S., we think about state and local. And, and then beyond the governmental regulations, if you do business in other countries, you might have GDPR if you're in Europe. Uh, and, and there's just it really gets complex quickly. States have in, individual privacy laws that you need to be aware of, and that's uh, getting more and more complex. And then on top of that, you've got commitments to other partners that you have contracts with in terms of how quickly you need to notify them if you have some type of breach. And you even have industry regulations. So for example, in the credit card industry, um, there's the PCI DSS, the Payment Card Industry Data Security Standard. That is not a government regulation. That is an, a, a essentially a, a voluntary industry uh, requirement that if you want to accept and process credit cards, you must follow. But it's created by a consortium of credit card companies. And, and so that's just kind of another dimension there. And, and that's why I say when you say legal, it sounds to me like it's compliance. And in reality, that's not all coming from just one department, be it legal or compliance. That's coming from four different departments. It's going to come from legal from the contracts aspect, and they'll handle, handle typically the, uh, the, the, the re government regulation. Um, in terms of the industry regulation for PCI, that's going to be the finance division. You know, it's just, it gets very complicated. And that's where I was saying earlier, it's really important for the, the CISO to have broad relationships everywhere. And, and, and even if they come from a narrow background, to have very broad horizons in, in their thinking. Yep, that is, that is very necessary for the kind of role a CISO plays, which is highly interdisciplinary. Um, and, you, and you talked about different types of uh, regulatory requirements. Some are requirements, some are industry regulations, industry expectations. So how do you stay on top of all this? Uh, do you have a team that provides that guidance or is one particular person assigned to make sure that you're on top of all the different expectations from a compliance and other uh, legal standpoint? Well, certainly we're going to focus on the ones that are most relevant to us uh, above others. And for example, that would include the HIPAA security rule and the HIPAA privacy rule, uh, the High Tech Act for healthcare, things like that. Um, but, but ultimately, what I have found to be effective is to find a framework, a security framework that incorporates multiple regulations and, and requirements so that you can focus on, on meeting the framework design and measure yourself against that. And by doing so, you're going to cover the majority of your basis related to regulatory requirements. Um, so, for example, in, in healthcare, there's the high trust framework. Um, that you could adopt. 
And, and I think a lot of organizations in the U.S. in particular are using the NIST, uh, CSF, the cybersecurity framework. These frameworks incorporate multiple regulatory requirements. Some of them go above and beyond it. So you actually have to kind of be careful that you don't um, uh, turn the wrench too tight on your organization. But it's a matter of picking that framework, laying it out, mapping what you do to the framework, figure out where you're doing well, where you need to improve, and then measuring yourself on that. Okay, good to know. Uh, talking about the U.S. healthcare industry, or you can, you know, go even further and talk about the global healthcare industry. There is a lot of report out there that talks about how the landscape um, or the the areas of vulnerability are expanding because of use of IoT devices, because of the complexity of these organizations. It's very hard to keep track of where the weak points are. In one particular report, they say there is enough evidence to suggest that US healthcare organizations lack a deliberate, organized and comprehensive cyber resilience strategy. So with this kind of statements being made, I just wanted to get your sense of what is the state of cybersecurity readiness in the, mm -hmm. US, in, the, in the US healthcare industry? So I, I believe that it's uh, far better than it was in the past, but there's of course still room for improvement. Mm -hmm. uh, when you talk about healthcare as an industry, it is a massive ecosystem. There are providers, including uh, large healthcare systems with multi-hospitals and clinics. There are standalone independent hospitals. There are phys physician practices. There are medical device manufacturers. Uh, there's even the insurance industry around healthcare. It is enormous, and it makes up a significant part of the United States GDP every year. Um, so what we're talking about is, is just massive and such different levels of, of sophistication. But when it comes down to it, Dave, cybersecurity is patient safety. Patient safety is cybersecurity. Now, historically, cybersecurity in healthcare was all about confidentiality because you were concerned about having a breach of patient data uh, electronic protected health information or EPHI would be a HIPAA breach. And then if, you, if, it, effect, if it affected more than 500 uh, records, then you got on the HHS wall of shame website uh, where it was publicly known. You know what? It's not only about confidentiality and I'm glad that it's not. It's much more about integrity and most importantly, availability now. Because now we recognize that, especially with ransomware attacks and similar types of things, Systems become unavailable and healthcare delivery, meaning providers, people touching patients and taking care of them, rely on electronic computer aided workflows. And if the systems are down because some patch broke something or there's a ransomware attack, then you can't easily know a patient's blood type. You can't look at their medical records to know what history they have, what allergies they have. You can't get lab results back to know how to treat a patient. And sometimes that could result in a life-threatening or life-altering delay. So a patient can recover from a data breach, but they might not be able to fully recover from lack of care. So that's where I really want to emphasize that cybersecurity is patient safety, and we all have to take it seriously, regardless of where we are in that healthcare ecosystem. Now, to be fair, there is a significant disparity in healthcare systems based on size and resources and how prepared people are for cybersecurity impact 
right? So those large multi-hospital systems typically have more resources and ability to deal with those kinds of things. Smaller community hospitals or systems might have less resources. Physician practices, if it's an independent practice, we've seen them close after one ransomware attack because the physicians that work there said it's just not worth trying to recover because all our patient records were in that system. I'm going to retire. So there's really a significant impact if you're not ready to handle these kinds of things. And everybody's a little bit different. So I think one of the things we've got to move towards and we've started to do so is to level the playing field in terms of ability to protect yourself against cybersecurity attacks. And that's where things like industry consortiums and government resources help you do what you need to do, even if you don't have the same resources as someone who's bigger. Okay, that's good to know. And in terms of you know, threat analysis, um, where you're, you're kind of testing the recovery capability of your organization, how, how committed is the organization in doing these kinds of uh, disaster recovery, business continuity planning? Uh, mm -hmm. if, you could, if you could expand on these um, approaches, strategies, let's say. Yeah, I, I think that um, testing your uh, strategies and procedures is absolutely crucial so that you're ready to execute on them during an emergency. Uh, it's very similar to sports, where if you have a team that just shows up once a week to play games, they are probably going to really struggle to do anything intricate on the field. You've got to practice all week long to get ready for that game. So when it comes to uh, business continuity, disaster recovery, responding to a phishing attempt, responding to a ransomware attack, any, any of those major types of incidents that you are writing an incident response plan for, you should be testing that at some frequency. Um, you could do a tabletop exercise twice a year and bring all the different people together that would be involved in a ransomware attack. You can, um, you can do red teaming where you have um, offensively minded people on your team try to break something or hack into a system and then tell you what's wrong and what needs to be fixed. That's actually evolving from the old red team, blue team model, blue team are the defenders, into a purple teaming approach where the red team and blue team are in the same room working together, and the red team will say, here's how I would attack it. The blue team says, here's how I would defend against it. And then they both go at it together as kind of a blended purple team. And that actually has even better results than the older model. So there's so many different ways that you should be testing these things. Uh, but I agree with you. It's absolutely essential to do frequent tests of the most likely and largest impacting types of incidents. You know, you mentioned um, about about audits and that brought back memories. I used to be an auditor in my, as part of my first career. Uh, we always do audit, it's like after the fact. And I've been a huge proponent of real-time audit, whether it's financial, whether it's security, because you want to know what the vulnerabilities are, what the weaknesses are. So you get an opportunity to fix it before it's too late. And there's no point reviewing historical facts because you didn't get a chance to fix it. It's, it's past now. What are your thoughts from the practicality of conducting real-time security audits? I think that it's becoming more and more commonplace. And uh, like you said, it, it, it's better to be proactive. 
Now, I do think if you've had an incident, you should do a very thorough review, root cause analysis, and understand what happened so that you can make changes and it can't happen again. And at the same time, I think that there is a concept that's been around for decades in audit called continuous controls monitoring, right? And so when we as security professionals put a control in place, you think it's there, you think it's uh, configured correctly, it's still operating effectively, but how often are you testing it to make sure? And, and so often you put it in place and you move on to the next thing without necessarily having a good operational plan to monitor it. So what I see becoming uh, much more relevant lately is this concept of CCM, the continuous controls monitoring, where you identify some key controls where if they were to fail, the impact could be significant, right? So high risk. Uh, and, and then from there, you figure out how are we gonna monitor this? Are we gonna set up some kind of alert to tell us if it fails and it sends us an email? Um, are we going to physically test it ourselves every once a week, every day, every hour? Are we gonna automate that and then only email us if it fails? That type of approach helps you identify weaknesses and vulnerabilities before someone else finds them and exploits them. And that's uh, certainly one of my focus areas uh, is, is to identify what those key controls are, come up with the monitoring plan based on potential risk, and then make sure that we're proactively looking at them ourselves before someone else finds them. Couldn't agree with you more. You have got to be proactive. You've got to con continuously monitor. Um, you know, started as you are aware, uh, based on the media reports, many of the breaches that have happened, large breaches, major breaches. Um, the story goes that the organization was made aware or a particular individual was made aware who did nothing about it. Based on your experience in the field, how or why does that happen? It's almost borderline negligence. And that's what the courts have found time and again, in several cases, they have found organizations to be guilty of negligence. Um, can you speak to that? I sure can, and I also want to be uh, very cautious because, you know, you can't always put yourself in someone else's shoes, especially after something has happened, right? It's sure. very easy to look back and say, how did you not see this going on, guys? Um, but I also know that historically there has been a certain amount of scapegoating that has occurred with CISOs where they were not necessarily given the authority or the resources to fix problems. They've made management aware of them and management accepted the risk. And only when it became a public relations issue did the organization decide that, oh yeah, why, we should have done something, right? It's the traffic light mentality. You, you, you see car accidents happening at a corner, um, but until there's a really bad one that gets a lot of visibility, they don't pay the money for a new traffic light because it's incredibly expensive to put that in there and then maintain it. So, you know, I, again, I, I want to be cautious about that concept of negligence because it's really easy to throw that word around. And that's primarily a legal term that results in higher damages, particularly for publicly traded companies with shareholder lawsuits. What I can tell you from my experience is that the amount and volume of alerts that come from a good, mature security system of, of anywhere from 25 or more security tools is enormous. And no matter how big your team is, it is a physical impossibility to look at every one of those alerts and determine if it's real or not. So yeah, we need more automation. We need to use more machine learning and AI to, to handle that avalanche of data. 
But the reality is, is you, you get so many of these types of warnings that you've got to use your judgment and your artistic skills and your logic to figure out which ones are the most likely to be going on and which ones you need to track down in the limited amount of time and resources you have to deal with it. You know, that is, you know, very enlightening to know. It's a hard, hard job, no doubt. Um, you, you touched upon something that brings to mind another topic that is very close to my heart, and that's the possibility of joint ownership and accountability. And you said, you just said that about the CISOs or the security professionals are made scapegoat of incidents. They often lose their jobs. But yet we, we say cybersecurity is everyone's business. Everyone has a role to play. Mm-hmm. How feasible is it to have structures and mechanisms where there is some level of joint ownership and accountability, both within the organization, as well as when you're partnering up with vendors, where the vendor organization also has a stake in ensuring your data is secure on their servers. Mm-hmm. Your thoughts? Well- I think that I have been much more successful at doing that within the organization than I have with vendor partners. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'll talk about them distinctly. Internally, uh, there is some responsibility with the security executive, be it a CISO or anyone else, to build that kind of framework. And by that, I mean, if, if a CISO operates independently and, and in the dark and throws around a lot of technical terms and doesn't do a good job of explaining why, then they're not going to kind of build that shared accountability concept uh, with the other key leaders of the organization, right? What's very important from my experience is to explain the why behind things, to do shared decision-making about which areas need prioritization based on risk, which ones you're going to jointly agree to not do anything about or maybe do a slower rollout for different reasons, be it financial, operational, and so forth and even get some guidance from key board members so that they understand the risks that you're accepting, the risks that you're not willing to accept, and and how much to invest, because there is eventually a declining ROI on those things, right? You can never eliminate risk unless you just stop doing business and turn off all your computers. That's probably not going to happen for most industries. So that's where I think that shared accountability, it comes from, it comes from shared decision-making, shared prioritization, shared understanding of what we're willing to accept or not, what threshold of risk can we live with, and what do we want to remediate otherwise? That's internal. When it comes to your vendor partner network, that is way more complicated. Same thing we talked about earlier, where healthcare has this disparity of capability and resources, vendor partners have the same thing, right? You've got the really large ones that are well-resourced and they'll They'll hand you their procedure sheet and, and their third-party audit reports of what they do for security. Uh, you then all the way at the other end of the spectrum, you've got what I consider to be small business websites that might run a specialized program for real estate or some other niche purpose where you know they say, uh, we ran a pen test once last year, but that's it. And and meanwhile, you've got an area of your organization that's screaming, saying, we have to use this. It's the only one that'll meet our requirements. And and you're trying to tell them, okay, but they're going to have the ability to log into our network. And uh, third-party breaches is one of the most common tactics to break into an organization now. If you look at some high-profile breaches, you'll find that they came in through, for example, uh, an air conditioning contractor. 
who responded to a phishing attempt, used their credentials to log in, and then they escalated from there. Well, I don't really want to bet my organization's security posture on the security capabilities of a thousand or more independent contracted vendor partners who may or may not have reasonable security practices. So it's up to me to make sure I'm working with everybody to get the right controls in place and give the minimum necessary access to these organizations and make sure that people are aware of the risk before they engage in business with these types of companies. Fabulous. Very, very insightful. Stoddard, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, before we conclude, any final thoughts for the audience? I would say that my, my journey has been um, very, very interesting in the cybersecurity industry, in particular for healthcare. It is a complex one, uh, but oh so rewarding. It's one of those few industries, in my opinion, where you can truly find purpose and meaning in the long hours and the resistance that you have to push through. And I am very grateful to uh, be in the position I'm in where I can help protect patients and enable our caregivers to take care of kids. Well, thank you again, Stoddard, for all that you do. I appreciate your time on the podcast and hopefully we'll talk to you again in the future. My pleasure, thank you. A special thanks to Stoddard Manikin for his time and insights. If you like what you heard, please leave the podcast a rating and share it with your network. Also subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. Thank you for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. The information contained in this podcast is for general guidance only. The discussants assume no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained in this podcast is provided on an as-is basis with no guarantee of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. The opinions and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the discussants and not of any organization. 